Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. You know, but if you, so you get fired, you failed, or you can look at it as I learned something. And you mm-hmm. learn something about yourself and, you know, and also over the course of time, you know, when you first get fired, you know, you think of the world has come to a halt, everything, everybody else has a job, but me. And then, you know, you learn, first of all, a lot of people get let go. And, you know, the, what used to be the most shameful thing in the world is actually just sort of part of the process. And uh, yeah. Uh, um, uh, were you actually fired? So being like a lot of times they would dress it up and like have me resign or do some other stuff where I like kind of convinced myself I wasn't even fired and then realized well, later been, I was, I've, I've been absolutely fired. And yeah. one of the times I was fired just before I was fired, my boss was in the office next to mine and he yells, Steve, could you come into my office for a moment? Now, that was perfectly harmless, innocent. Steve, could you come into my office for a moment? And when I walk in, HR is already sitting in his office. And I looked at yeah. him and her, and I went, oh, God, I already know what's going to happen. <laughs> and, of course, I got like a For the rest of my life, anytime anybody said to me, Steve, could you come into my office for a second? I always thought, oh, God, here it is. I'm fired. <laughs> sure, you said you've been even fired more than me. So uh, is there like a specific one that stands out as being uh, memorable, either – because of how bad it was or because of how good it was? Well, uh, almost, well, there's a whole bunch of them that blur into one because <laughs> in every case, I was always thinking on, like, I always knew I was sort of getting away with certain things, but thought nobody saw those things. And yep. then always gave myself probably too much credit for doing things uh, that I shouldn't <laughs> have been doing. And so then, so it was like both shocked and not surprised. You know, every with each one of these firings, and mm-hmm. um, but eventually, I I figured something out about it, and um, uh, which is that I was in the wrong. Well, uh, uh, is it what I figured out? Because it's is it we're barking <laughs> up the wrong tree. I'm I'm leaving finance for good. Okay, well, um, Me, meaning uh, I, so I'll, I'll tell you real quick my thing is yeah, go ahead. I can't do finance all day, and then manage my own finances afterwards. I'm just so tapped out. And so that means I'm I'm always screwed financially. And then also like I'm an extrovert. I can't be my whole job doing numbers, communicating in numbers alone. You know, Mm. it's not, it's not fulfilling that social side. So I think I need to do like sales or something, something that's more like customer focused, talking to people. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That you find out that the reason that you keep getting fired, it really wasn't the boss's fault. The boss, no. What the boss yeah. needed was somebody who liked working by themselves or liked liked the things that you don't like. And mm-hmm. so, you know, so it wasn't really anybody's fault and he didn't really do anything wrong. You're not hardwired to do that sort of thing. And then what you learn over time is that there is a perfect job out, for, out there for you that has both, like in your case, the social element. But it yeah. requires somebody who comes from a, the financial background or has the financial world, you know, in their head or, you know, it'll be, it'll be something that's perfect for you. And, I, and I'll give you an example of this. One of my clients or one category of clients I have is um, uh, companies that sell information. 
Yeah, that's what I do. Some kind Actually. of business information, Mintel, and uh, it's all marketing information. I teach, I teach Excel online, so I teach people how to do Excel. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, so you look at, uh, you know, so like in their company, they'll, they'll hire people that'll sell into a vertical, those kind mm -hmm. of companies. So they'll go, all right, we need somebody to know something about banks. We know somebody who could sell into uh, the stock, the brokerages or the, the, the um, you know, hedge funds. Coming from that world gives you a leg up that nobody else in sales would have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. Because I've been living in Excel models for a long time, but also I, um, I just realized that no one wants to buy Excel by themselves. I got to start doing the business to business one, and I think I was doing B two C as like a proof of concept to make sure it wasn't uh, like getting refunded by everybody, or just to make sure it like worked and now everything broke. And now I'm pretty confident I need to probably pivot to do more B two B stuff. And so, like in your realm, that's what you do, right? Primarily B two B sales. I do primarily B two B. In fact. B to B. So what would you say is like the biggest um, maybe change in thinking when going from B to C to B to B? And for anybody who's listening, who doesn't know these terms. It's a business to a consumer is the type I'm doing, which is selling to individual people. B to B is business to business, which is um, selling to a business, hopefully a lot more um, users, for example. Okay. You know, had you asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have said it's like two, it's like somebody in Venus and somebody in uh, Neptune, the difference <laughs> between B to C and B to B. Actually, the differences have um, in many ways have come together. So B2C is very hard and people mm -hmm. make personal decisions um, f with maybe 50 different things that may be a motivation of why they're doing what they're doing. A and a lot of things that we decide to do or we don't decide to do, we do for psychological reasons and then we later justify. In fact, everything you buy, you buy with your emotions and you later rationalize it. Mm -hmm. But in in a consumer setup uh, you know, environment, you very seldom have to defend your or explain your decision to anybody else to somebody's satisfaction. That's mm -hmm. a big dis difference in in B two B sales. So if I'm a manager of some department and I need help and I buy a service, like let's say I buy your exact same service, mm -hmm. it's not only that I thought that gee this looks like it would be the right thing and you're the right vendor and everything is right. But I probably have a boss that's going to go, so what did you do? How much did you yeah. spend? Why did you think that's the right amount? So I've got to now, I've got the extra pressure of not only doing something that I think is right, but I'm trying not to get fired and I'm trying to look mm -hmm. good to my boss. And, uh, you know, how do I make this, how do I make making this decision make me look good? So yeah. as a result, uh, I there's there's more considerations. However, having said that, the B2B customer has become more like the B2C customer, according to studies that, that I started reading about a year and a half ago. In terms of like how you market to them or what? Well, here's a big difference. The big difference is that like a B2C customer, the B2B customer no longer wants to start the buying process by talking to salespeople. Now, in the old mm -hmm. days, as soon as you had any kind of a need, you go, let me bring in a couple of salespeople and we'll chat yeah. about it and we'll, uh, you know, and we'll learn. Now the the uh, the customer has the internet. The customer's got social media. The customer's got thought leaders that they could avail. The customers could check out your reviews. So mm -hmm. by the time the B two B customer talks to a, a salesperson, they're actually fifty to seventy five percent of the way through their buying process. 
And that means that they've already got some information and they're looking at you through a filter of, let's call it a bias. That because mm -hmm. of whatever they learned, that's the filter. That's the bias. Yeah. As opposed to the old days where they didn't know anything about you and you yeah. painted a picture right in front of them. So would that be step one then? Make sure whatever it is out there that is your, uh, what they're going to find when they look you up without reaching well, out? I think maybe step one is to realize, you know what, uh, this person, let's not assume they don't know anything. Or, mm -hmm. or everything they, they learned is not going to influence their thinking. Let's start by asking these two questions. How long have you been looking? And then when they go, oh, I've been looking for six months, rather than say, oh, great. Well, I'm glad we're here together. Let me tell you why I'm so yeah. great and why, you know, don't worry about this. Instead, we should be asking this question. How come you haven't already picked somebody? You've been looking for six months. You got the Internet. You got a phone. You got friends. Yeah. You got a budget. <laughs> and the answer to that question would start with these words. Well, reason that we haven't started, we haven't picked somebody. You see, the thing is, the thing about us, the thing about the thing is, you know, the thing that is, that's the reason they haven't bought somebody yet. Two of us in the conversation, only one of us knows the thing. Wouldn't it be helpful <laughs> if we also knew the thing? Because that yeah. thing that prevented them from buying from everybody else will also prevent them from buying from you unless you address whatever that thing is. Yeah. And I think it's good to let them let because sometimes they might not even have thought about it themselves. So like in that moment, they're also contemplating what maybe has gone wrong. So they'll maybe give you a more uh, legitimate off the cuff remark rather than something that's kind of prepared. And I think one of the things, at least when I know when I've had budgets and stuff and I'm spending on other people's money, it's like you're saying, it's really just making sure I'm not making the wrong choice. Like whatever it is, is I'm going to feel comfortable with with the decision, you know, a year from now and that I didn't rush into it kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. If you're spending your own money, you'll either be more cautious or less cautious. But when you, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you're a lot, a lot less cautious You, you yeah. because you're totally OK with making an emotional decision. But if mm -hmm. you're buying for somebody else with somebody else's money, it's like, well, it's not really my money. That's why. I yeah, it could be either way. It could either be yeah. more loose or, or not. Um, and so how did you actually get started with the sales training stuff? Because what was your job that you got fired from? Is it all? Okay. So glad you asked because it was actually <laughs> failure that finally pushed me into this thing. Uh, and it's only in retrospect that I realized there were signs along the way that I actually uh, uh, knew what I was doing. So when I first, uh, first got out of school, I wanted to be a stand-up comic. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I liked what I saw on TV did you when do I watched stand-up. I did stand-up comedy for a long time. And one of the challenges of stand-up comedy is it starts not on stage, but it starts with a blank piece of paper and you have to write something funny. And so I would take my pen and I would try to write something funny. And no matter what I wrote, I would imagine the audience looking at me, bored, arms crossed, going, oh, God. And then I, so I'd, I'd crumple up the piece of paper. Let me start again. Let me start again. I, months and months and months and months and months. And months. So writing anything was difficult. Um, uh, eventually, somebody said to me, you know, you ought to think about improvisation. I go, what's that? Well, that's when you make it up as you go along. Wait a minute. No script? No no writing anything? To, no bit? to. I'm in. How do I get involved in this thing? You don't have to repeat it over and over and get like... Yeah, you never repeat anything. You make it up as you go along. It was the ultimate thing for a guy that didn't like to script anything. But... When I look at the two things that I used to do, stand-up comedy, one of the things that I did, as and the nightclub owners actually made me stop. They actually stopped hiring me because of this bit. It was like the best bit I had 
in terms of getting laughs. But it, mm-hmm. so what I would say to an audience, I'd stand up. Now picture it's like, you know, if you're new to stand up comedy, you're like the eighth out of 15 stand ups. And uh-huh. I'd get up and I'd said, you know, today's audiences are not particularly good hecklers. In the old days, they were great hecklers. But in today's world, I find that people are just not really good at the heckling. And in fact, let me prove my point. And I would point to somebody in the audience, usually a physically bigger guy than me. So it didn't look like I was unfairly picking on the wrong person. Usually it was a guy on a date who wasn't paying any attention to me at all. And I go, you see that six foot five, 300 pound guy over there? Uh, I want you to heckle me. And he'd look up and go, what? He always go, he's go, I'm in the show too? Yeah, nah, yeah, could you heckle me? And whatever he said, I'd go, nah. Now, let me show you. And I'd get off the stage. I'd stand next to him and I'd point to the imaginary stand up on the stage. And I would give a funnier heckle that I had actually prepared. And then I'd come back on stage and go, all right, you know, you try it. And, he, and I, I was like making him role play being a heckler. Yeah. And I would critique him. Now, years later, I'm in sales training. It's the same thing. You know, <laughs> sell me something. Give me a pitch. Give me a turnaround. Give me something. No, that's not exactly. So I was critiquing. You know, the critiquing the person was the thing I was yeah. doing. That was the best thing I was doing. When I got into improv, I was also doing that. And again, got thrown out, you know, got in a lot of trouble. One of the many bits that we did was a, a poet's corner where everybody would uh, assume a character and we would ask the audience for a suggestion. You make up a poem about it. And there'd be like five people. I'd be the fifth one. The first four people, very clever that they came up with a rhyming poem based on the suggestion. But when I would get up, I would claim to be some character with a with an English accent, and I would say, I'm going to critique the other four poets. And so I would critique their poetry. The first guy, what's wrong with his, that didn't even rhyme when he said that. So the other actors hated when I did that, they're critiquing them. It sounds like you don't like rules and you like to break yeah, the rules. <laughs> don't like the rules, don't like the thing. So, but uh, but it's trying to avoid sales. And um, uh, I don't know why. I no longer remember why I was trying to avoid sales because now I actually am in it. I'm in sales training. I work with salespeople. I sell my service. I actually think it's a, in the world of jobs, there are a lot of boring jobs. Sales is just not a boring job. I, I like it just for yeah. that. So, um, but I wasn't in sales and, uh, and my wife talked me into it. And she, way she talked me in, she wasn't in sales either, but she talked me into it by one day she calls me from her office. She goes, I'm looking out the window at the, uh, at the parking lot where the salespeople of my company park their cars. And you know what I'm noticing? Mm-hmm. How much nicer their cars are than our car. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe you want to think about sales and, you know, with that sales. And I didn't know anything about sales. I, I go in and I, it's a total winging it. And I didn't know yeah. what the hell I was talking about. And, um, um, but uh, during this period of time, I walked around and I would think to myself, I'm so unhappy. Why am I always unhappy in my job? Why do I hate it? Mm-hmm. And I, what I realized was I was always doing the exactly wrong thing. What I was doing was every time I would need a job, I looked for a job and I was so good at improvisation. I was so good at getting somebody to laugh right away that I would always do a great interview. So basically, if I interviewed for three jobs, I got one of them. So I wasn't even that worried about getting let go or looking because I could always find another job. But what would happen is I kept getting fired. And even my first sales job fired. So I thought, but why, why, what goes wrong? What, what really is, and I realized when I pulled it apart, here's what I figured out. Every time I got let go, I looked for a job and I happened to look for a job among the jobs that were being listed that month. 
Now, had I looked mm-hmm. a month earlier, had I looked two months later, there would have been yeah. a different group of jobs, and I would have got all the dice. I, I would have had a totally different career based on the <laughs> week I happen yeah, to be looking for. You a do. Job. I mean, it's the same thing. I don't want to. Yeah. Spend so it. then I realized. Yeah. So then I said to myself, you know what? That's stupid. Because why should that be what controls my life? You know what? Let me go the yeah. other way. What would be the perfect job? So to me, the perfect job. So I sat there and I went, what would be the perfect job? Is there a job where you could just sit there and do nothing and get paid? No, I don't think so. <laughs> All right. Is there a job? What job has the thing? I, and what I learned is it's very difficult to do what I'm about to describe. Write down a list of things you like to do. Because the problem is you can't stop yourself from editing. So as soon as you go, you know what? I'd like a job where I get to travel. Ah, there's no job where I job. I like a job where I get to do this. Ah, there's no, I don't even So as soon as you can't think of a job that does that. Well, I came up with this job description. I'd like a job that has the elements I like about stand-up comedy, where I get to be on stage. But unlike stand-up comedy, I'm not doing it on Friday nights and Saturday nights. I'm not doing it in little clubs all over the place. And I'm not auditioning for somebody. I'm auditioning myself. So I'd like a job that's like stand-up comedy that I'm on stage. I'm, pr- I'm pr- primarily paid. But if I could get a commission, wouldn't that be a great thing? I don't know if there's a job like that, but that it took me two years to finally admit that that's the job I want. And so having no idea what that was, it turns out there is a job like that. Sales training. You get to be on stage. You get to be funny. You don't have to work weekends. You hardly ever work evenings. And you get to travel and you get a commission. I mean, it was like, who knew? So, you know, so improv. So, uh, go ahead. Oh, no, I have a question because I'm, I'm in the same boat. I've, I've taken tests and everything, like whatever, career things. They said I should go into sales. I just have a reluctance to sales that I, just like you, I didn't know what it Maybe it's money related things. Maybe it's just trying to sell something but not knowing what it's going to be. So there's resisting that. Um, but when I, so now I've done 15 years or whatever in finance and accounting, I have no sales experience. The one way I can make money for sure at a level that I am used to is finance and accounting. If I'm pivoting to do sales stuff, what would be the, how do you convince anybody that you're worthwhile if you haven't done it? You know, I mean, what did you do to convince anybody that it was something you could do? Uh, well, actually, um, I, uh, I failed at sales. I, I first, I, I, rem, I, the only thing I knew about sales is what I saw in TV shows and movies. So I kind of did what I saw those people because I was like an actor. Yeah, like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, or what is it? What were you? Even worse than that, I would just imitate whoever. Like if you walked a certain way and you were my boss, I'd walk like you. If you sat a certain <laughs> way, I'd sit, I'd sit like you. And I, I didn't really know what to think about. And, um, um, but what happened is I got down on myself. And um, I got to the point that uh, I would walk into the customer's office like halfway in and I would poke my head and I'd like, oh, listen, you think you're going to buy anything for me today or should I just go <laughs> screw myself? You know, and a terrible approach. I, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody else. And uh, but over the time, what I've learned is, first of all, there's all kinds of sales jobs. There's jobs where you mm-hmm. go after people who don't know anything about you. There are jobs you go yeah. to warm leads. There are jobs you only work with existing customers. There are jobs, you know, you sell bigger clients that often buy services like this, or you're trying yeah. to talk strangers into something. So there's, there's, there's a job. There's also certain products are easier for certain people to sell than other products mm-hmm. or other services. I yeah. love a service. I'm not good with a product. I'm good with a service that you that is only what the way you describe it. 
and improves their life, I imagine. Well, I could paint a picture that it could improve your life yeah. as opposed to like, let me say you this pen. I'm, I'm limited to what the pen yeah. has. But, you know, when I'm tell, telling about a service, uh, I can make up the service in any way I want. So um, mm -hmm. uh, so for me, the verbal being verbally gifted allowed me to uh, take on jobs where being verbally gifted is the uh, is the key to that. There's nothing but the verbal part. You know, I'm good at bullshitting. So I feel like it would be. It'd be a nice zone to, to live in. And if you can make money on it, like, like commission, if there's bonus money involved, that's cool too. Cause then there's like a game to it. Yeah. It's totally a game. And, and I think the other thing about accounting that's tough is like, you know, a month will go by and you know, monthly close happens. And no one's like, congratulations accounting. You guys did it. Like no one gives yeah, a shit no, at all. That's right. <laughs> I, I often bring that up in a sales training class. Somebody just role playing. Like, all right, let's give them a big hand for that role play. Cause it's like so much going into a role. Play. I said to them, I bet they don't do this in the accounting uh, training. I bet they don't have a accounting training. Like, oh, right. What a spread. That pivot table was great. Come on. Let's give them a big hand for that. Like nothing. In fact. Yeah, it's only when there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, the accounting isn't famous for being enthusiastic like salespeople. So probably even when they are applauding, they're, they're mostly like, okay. You know, like they wake up for a moment. Yeah, I hate that accounting is the go-to. Make fun of them for being boring one. And I'm doing that. I'm like, okay. Well, yeah. Can I tell you what the big secret, the big secret, the big secret that nobody wants to say, here's how you make more sales. You ready? Need the money. Needing the money leads to better sales than anybody. And I'll tell you how I learned that, that lesson. I mean, I thought I knew it, but I really learned it. One day, one of my clients asked me to um, uh, attend one of their annual events where they were going to give out awards and all these awards for their top salespeople. So I went, oh, well, sure, I'll attend the event. And I attend the event. And they surprised me by giving me an award for being a trainer that helped them. I was really excited. But it put me at this event. And it also mm -hmm. allowed me to meet their best salesperson of the year. And at the time, um, so we was the, the, the whole event was at this great hotel in uh, Florida. I ended up talking to the salesperson. And uh, she's a runner. I was running at the time. I said, you know, do you want to run tomorrow? So the next morning at about six o'clock in the morning, we're running on the beach and I'm talking to her. And I said, well, so what's your background? And she said, well, I was a FedEx driver for the last 14 years. I'm a, I'm a uh, single mother and I'm a driver for 14 years. And I got into the sales role about uh, 10 months ago. I said, well, wait a minute, I know this company. They recruit the best salespeople and they brought you in with no sales experience and you actually outsold <clears> these so-called experience pro how what what how did she, she just looked at me and she goes i needed the money yeah you know what now cut to years later i get let go let go let go a million times and i gotta tell you that uh after getting let go and of course when i would get let go i would always go into the same rant i tell my wife that boy you know you're not gonna believe it what an a-hole that that boss is yeah. and one day she looked at me and she goes you know what i gotta tell you something if you had one boss and you had one boss and that boss was an a-hole, you know, statistically that can happen. Everybody might have that. Two, that'd be a lot, but you know, every single boss you've ever had is an a-hole. Maybe it's not them. Maybe it's you. Yeah. And uh, with that thinking, you know, of course it stung, but a couple of weeks later when I recovered, I realized yeah, maybe it is me. And maybe the problem is I don't like taking instructions or directions from anybody else. Yes. So now what's interesting is I learned I need to run my own company. Yeah. However, I still have an a-hole boss, me. 
You know, yeah. the thing about the a-hole boss is they make you do things that nobody else will make you do. When yeah. you run your own company, there's no other boss. You, you, you need somebody to make you do what you So you end up making yourself do things that you wouldn't believe that you would do. And so, uh, uh, you know, that's part of And you know but what? If you're going to work for a, a demanding boss. That's right. Be your own demanding the boss. The weirdest, quirkiest one of all. <laughs> you come up, you know, as soon as you need the money, you come up with, huh, what'll go wrong? What could I do? What's I feel like I've even, when I've had, when I've had like a little bit of money, I felt like I had to get rid of all of it just to need money to act like that. Like I spent a bunch, I I think subconsciously to, to put myself in the position to need it. Meaning I don't try to save it when I have a very little bit. I just try to spend it all in weird ways to make sure I have uh, like abilities to do stuff, you know? Ah, well, you gotta, you gotta know yourself and play whatever psychological trick it takes. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, it is a trick. It is a trick. How <laughs> yeah. you convince yourself you need more money, even if you made it, maybe you don't really need the money, but you know, you have to convince yourself that you need. The yeah. Money. Well, I know like, for example, I don't care about financials, like financial statements and doing it. They can't pay me enough to care. Like that doesn't make me care. They can keep paying me more. I'm happy to do that, but it won't make me care. Uh, they can get mad and stress me out and it won't make me care. Like I can't figure out how to make me care. So I got to just not do that thing because otherwise they're always going to try to get me to care and I'm not going to do it. Meaning it's just not going to happen. And at this point, for sure, not going to happen. Like I just got to admit it to myself and move on to the other thing, whether it's sales or anything else. I mean, I have my own business and I just suck at selling it too. Like I'm good at making the content for it but the marketing of it and selling it is where i sometimes feel you know like the car salesman thing where you don't want to be too full of yourself whatever for the longest time i didn't have any ads even on the site uh -huh. um just to figure out if it's useful um but i gotta get past some of those things or i mean i mostly have gotten past some of it but now i gotta actually well let me let me give you let me give you a piece of advice and this is one of these things as i tell you you'll realize that you always knew this you just never thought of it i wrote a book called Leverage Your Laziness. And it's on this very topic. Now, I don't mean yeah. lazy like in a morally corrupt way. I mean lazy yeah. as a measurement of work. So mm -hmm. when you are lazy, like when you feel lazy, I don't feel like doing anything. Yeah, procrastinating, whatever. So, so maybe you'll sit on a couch. Maybe you'll get up to have a beer, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. But eventually you'll get up and do something. And what will you end up doing? You'll do the thing that you like doing, you're good at, and comes easy to you. Each of us has something that we're good at and actually comes easy to us. Hard for other people, actually easy for us. It's easy for me to be on stage and make things up as I go along. It's hard mm -hmm. for a lot of other people who have a fear of being on stage, right? Yeah. So so what I, I look to do is look at all of the tasks that need to be done and say, which ones fit into my laziness? Which one of the ones mm. I like doing are good at doing? Doesn't feel like work. And yeah. then let me find some partner or partners whose laziness fills in my gaps. So, mm. you know, for example, I'm not good at doing any kind of filling out a form. I've got people on my staff who, you know what they're really good at? Filling out forms. Mm. Or I'm not, I don't have enough patience to create the right Excel or the right PowerPoint. I got people on team, they love doing that. So like, so that's what you got to do. You got to find the person who's got that. When they're lazy, they do the thing you don't like to do. So you got to find the right partner. Yeah, that's a good point too. Cause um, a lot of times I don't really think about the, <clears throat> the what do I do instead thing? You know, I am, I'm good at delaying the tasks I'm told to do, 
But the what I do instead, you know, the what I do to fill that time instead, I don't usually think about what that is. Um, and I think I, one thing I was just mentioning is I buy, I probably have like 60 or 70 different domain names. And I love doing website stuff and like with no purpose, no idea what it's going to be. And so like just playing with stuff and technology and like breaking things. Um, and so I know a lot of people get stressed around stuff like that. And uh, I don't mind because I've done it so many times and messed up so many things that, you know, I know how it's all going to go for the most part. But um, I think I got to figure out a good a good mix of the, the software and technology piece. So like each time I've been fired, I feel like here's who I am at home and here's who I am at work. And like each time they get closer to the same person because I'm mm -hmm. pretending to be someone else less. And then I'm more honest about what I need out of a job because I always just assumed, well, you're going to hate working. So I'll be this guy who pretends like he likes it. And then at home, I'll be pissed off. <laughs> right, right. Right. Why don't you get a job where you get to be you all day long is really yeah. the, uh, key. And then it'd be less of a emotional toll going home and stuff, you know, like. It, yeah. Well, actually, maybe not, because you got to be careful what you wish for. So I mm -hmm. had wanted this job, as I told you. But at one point in my life, I was doing 200 in-person workshops a year. Wow. And I was on that track for a number of years until I like physically broke down. Over my career, I've done more than 5,000 workshops literally wow. stood in front of 50,000 people. I'm not even talking about the online stuff, yeah, and the yeah. virtual stuff, just live in person. And this is all over the world. Yeah. Four million air miles, 4,000 nights of my life in a hotel, <laughs> missed every social and family thing you can as I traveled around the world. So too much of a good thing. You know, it's a, <clears throat> it led to, a, it was a good career and a good job and it was exactly what i wanted but you gotta you know so it doesn't mean that you're always happy either yeah you, know, you still find things to complain about do you think you're the kind of person that's uh, either your brain's always working over time or you need something to fill your time meaning like that sounds like a lot but it seems like something you enjoyed i like also filling my time up unreasonably so that i can't even get a free moment to think oh yes I'm well the way i describe it is i'm not happy unless i'm unhappy meaning that <laughs> Let's say I've got nothing going on. I don't have any clients. I don't have any leads. I don't have any proposals. And now I'm depressed. Now I'm really depressed. Now I want to kill myself. So what I do is to prevent that from happening, everything is to prevent the psychological feeling of depressed. I, uh -huh. get, I, I think of, you know, what if I try this? And not just that or this. I go, what do I try this? And this, and this. And I get myself physically so busy working on 10 things at once that I don't have any time. Now, what will happen is I'm working on 10 things at once, three of them, maybe four of them, maybe five of them will actually start to work. So now mm -hmm. I'm so busy that I can't even I can't even breathe. I'm unhappy. So I'm either unhappy because I have nothing to do or I'm unhappy because I have too much to do. And I made and I gave myself the job. That's the yeah. weird thing for me. When I when I don't feel like working, some days I don't feel like work. I go, I analyze that. And I go, what? I'm selling me doing mm -hmm. me. What could I not like about, and I came up with the assignment in the first place. So mm -hmm. how could I not love everything I'm doing? And yet somehow I could still find a way to be unhappy. about it. Yeah. I mean, some, I think some, some part of it is just uh, wanting something new and like not, uh, not being comfortable. Like we don't want to follow rules and everything. We don't want to be told what to do, but also we don't even want to listen to ourselves tell us what to do. Or at least I find that I'm, I can't even follow my own advice half the time. Uh, so even figuring out, if I'm giving myself good advice or, or, and whether I should be taking it, but then figuring out like kind of uh, what, what things am I doing that are actually helping me out versus things that are just a distraction 
and have no value, but also some of those things are super fun and awesome. Um, like this failure thing has no way of making money at the moment, no way of doing it. Like there's no real purpose and it's one of the more fun things that's going on. So meaning, I don't know, I think when I divorce things from money, it becomes more fun for me. And then I don't know how to bring it in, you know, and feel yeah. good about it. But uh, but I'm at least trying to figure out how to get past whatever money issues it is to make more stuff so that when I am, you know, more comfortable with it, um, it's at least easier. Like I could easily be writing 10,000 emails to whatever B2B clients and just send it all out if 1% does anything and then 1% of that, whatever. Like I could easily be doing something, but to your point, it's like, well, what, what do I want to do or what do I want to do to distract me from what I need to do um, kind of thing. And so I was curious with all those speaking engagements uh, over 5,000, did you have a, a one that stands out as the worst <laughs> or most memorably bad? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. In my business, um, a disaster is when they never hire you again. And um, when I first started, it would happen like one out of every 10 times, then it one out of every hundred times, and then one out of every thousand times. And at this point in my career, almost every time I speak, it goes great, super high reviews, but every so often a total disaster. And I had a situation about a year and a half ago with a client that was a guy that I have worked with many, many times. He keeps changing jobs, brings me in, and, and the, the assignment kept changing. So it first was going to be like, work with these nine people for uh, a day. And then it was, instead of nine, could you work with a hundred people for two hours? Um, but teach everybody, you know, all of these things. And oh, by the way, when I got there, the air conditioning was broken. So the room was like 90 degrees filled with like a hundred people. And it was physically uncomfortable. Everybody was far away. The room was half the size it needed to be. Everybody was, they couldn't... And so, and then they, they, they between the, the room setup being different, the heat of the room, the, the group, everything about it, just, it was a total disaster. I never got, the guy never even talked to me ever. This guy had, <laughs> had phoned me all over the world for a variety. All of a sudden, I can't even get the guy to return my email. And so, but I thought about, all right, what did, I, if I could do it again, what mm -hmm. would I have done? And I came up with a series of changes to my business that I wouldn't have thought of if I didn't come up with that disaster. Yeah. That changed that day's program, the way I teach it, the way I will adjust to big changes that might happen, things I could have done to prevent being surprised or unprepared, things mm -hmm. I could have done to make it work. Um, so I yeah. came up with content, I came up with delivery, um, it involves some technology. It involves some different planning. And as a result, my business actually became a more scalable yeah. business with a better, uh, better service. So I wouldn't have thought of that had it not had that not I, well, none of those things. I would have just kept doing things the way I would, had always done it. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was only this disaster that uh, ruined everything that uh, caused me to uh, to to pick up the pieces after I got over the emotional over it. Mm -hmm. And uh, almost every time I, I move in a new direction, think of a new program, come up with a great idea that actually has legs. It followed a complete failure, which is why I had to think of it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And even if, um, even if it's not like a, a really bad failure or anything, even just when I'm annoyed by something, I'm like, I right, remember that. 
when I'm setting up this projector and all this shit, this is so annoying. I want to fix whatever this thing is. I'm going to get all the wires to whatever, whatever the thing is, because I, I hate getting in my own way when I'm trying to do anything like that. And so like, if there's like those environmental things that try to figure out, I don't know, bring a fan or something, whatever it is to like make it so there's no way that some of these things can break down. But another thing with the failure piece is like um, when, when I have something that works well, I try to think of what were the things that I fucked up in the past where then I, I'm already implementing the the failure piece. You know, I'm already, I've already learned a lesson, but I didn't really focus on the fact that I learned it. So like what things that I did in the past and messed up led me to do it right this time. And a lot of times there's like a lot of things that I didn't even realize would have tripped me up if I hadn't already been tripped up, you know, once before. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's pretty cool. Um, I, I do have a question that I like to ask everybody on the uh, podcast, which is being a guest in the podcast, you get to get a get out of fail free card. So it's oh, kind of like a get out of jail free card, but instead nice. you get to apply it to a, a, a passion of yours that you haven't pursued because maybe failure is too big of an option. Um, is there like a, a, a hobby or a career or something that you'd pursue if you couldn't necessarily fail at it? You know, it's a funny thing. It's a great question because I spent my whole life wishing, you know what I wish I could do? You know what I wish I could? Well, I actually do the things that I like to do. So I like being a guest on other people's podcasts. I like, I also have my own podcast. I also came up with a service so that I could do podcasts for my clients. Why? Because I love podcasts. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. So talking and meeting people and learning and laughing about things. So I like that. I like writing books. I'm, I'm working on that. I'll tell mm -hmm. you, the only thing that I would change if I retired today is I would do exactly what I'm doing. I just wouldn't worry about the, the money. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't worry about closing any deal. I would just do it. If I, if somebody wouldn't pay me, I just do it for free or I'd find someplace I could do it, you know, that where they would appreciate it because it was free. And yeah. um, uh, in fact, even to some degree, I'll give me an example of something. I'm working with a client today. I was on the phone with them about a week ago and I'm trying to close this deal. And they were kind of like, I could smell that it was, they had a need, they had an interest, but I could see it was going to be politically difficult for them to pull off a decision. So I said, I'll mm. tell you what, why don't I do something for free? That way you'll know if you'll, if, if investing more in me would make more sense. And meanwhile, <clears> you'll get some value. I'll get a chance to do it. You know, I'm, I'm willing to try something yeah. for free, spend an hour with you. And um, so, you know, so, uh, you know, I'm actually, Sometimes I use the free as a as a sales technique, if you will. But uh, um, but you know, I can't really think of anything that I would do. Uh, but not like uh, so. Have you have you tried acting? Oh yeah. What was your experience there? Well, I'll tell you something. And this is if you're young. My daughter's an actress. If you're young, the competition is unbelievable. The older you get. <laughs> And I hate to say it in this way because it sounds sexist, but if you're you're older and you're a guy, mm -hmm. so if you're a woman, the, the a woman is expected to be beautiful and stunning and and you know and be so. If you look at any woman on stage or in film, they always have to be like a hundred times more talented and beautiful than yeah. their man. You know, occasionally you find a male handsome guy, but you also find how many how many. Famous actors, men are like ugly, overweight, can't sing. 
we don't care as much how they look, or at least they don't care. Uh, you know, or, or the fact that they're overweight actually makes them look like the character they're supposed to play. Yeah, we allow them to be funnier and weirder, but the women still yeah. look beautiful. Yeah, so it's actually it was interesting. I've it's 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 not hard to get jobs if you're older, an older guy. A woman, it's it's always impossible. It's it's like the Olympics. what's the hard? What would you say is the hardest part of a, of auditioning uh, for like an acting role? Uh, well, it's the psychology of it that once you start acting and you go through the audition mill, you can mm -hmm. audition a lot to get one gig. I, a guy that I spoke to told me his wife was a Broadway actress, actually was in Les Mis. So you oh, got to wow. be really good, right? He goes, she still auditions and 95% of the time she does not get the part. So like she walks in with the most impressive resume, super talented, you know, incredible voice, can sing, dance, act, comedy, does ever a full, complete, but everybody else. The rejection, that's the harder part? Like the amount of rejection that there is built yeah. in? Yeah, that's the hardest thing. Yeah, I guess because most times what? They have like one or two or three spots. I mean, like backups. I don't it's know not only that. One. It's like there are certain, like you're trying to guess what you could do to get them to like you. But meanwhile, yeah. maybe there's nothing because the other person on stage is taller or shorter and they need somebody yeah. that, the same height or mm -hmm. there's something that's intangible that you have no control over that they will yeah. for whatever reason they don't like you maybe benefit from that too they're like oh this guy looks just the right amount of weird that we need the other thing is you could be surprised that way too you could go and i you know I, I, one of my favorite stories is some kid i i knew um decided to give up on acting he's you know what so hard so after mm -hmm. he gave up, but he still had this one audition left on his calendar. He went, oh, I'll go. I don't even care anymore. So he goes without caring. Now he doesn't even care. And what happens? He blows away the, he does an incredible job at the audition because he removed the caring so much and like mm -hmm. opened up and just did everything he ever wanted to do. And he gets the part and all of a sudden he's back in acting. So, you know, because he relaxed. Yeah. It's the well, that's usually how it goes. I mean, uh, or you have nothing left to lose. Whatever the reason, the way you can get to the point of not giving it, you know, not caring at all about what, not thinking while you're doing it, but just doing it um, is usually when you're in your best zone. Yep. Yep. Um, so I only have a couple more questions because we're coming up on uh, a little bit of the time. Do you okay. uh, do you have anything specifically you're working on now that you're going to be, um, I, I say like, what's your next big failure uh, going to be? Like, what's the next <laughs> thing you're going to be working on that you haven't yet done? A great way to say that. I was just thinking of it today. Among the many things I'm working on is a new book. I'm about to release a book called Echo Selling. I've been okay. working on this book for a while. I've been talking about the concepts. How many books do you have? Oh, uh, this is my third book. Okay. And um, uh, so if you go into Amazon, Steve Bookbinder and Amazon, you'll see uh, How to mm -hmm. Be Your Own Coach, Leverage Your Laziness, and soon you'll see Echo Selling. And um, hopefully it takes off. However, I'm already emotionally prepared for it not to take off, <laughs> and uh, I'm already working on the fourth book. Yeah, I always do the lowered expectations thing. Keep, I mean, high hopes, but <laughs> if I expect something and it doesn't happen, I'm always pissed off. So I got to keep those expectations low until I've already got the thing in my possession, basically. Um, and so where do you think people could, I mean, you just mentioned the books. Is there a specific place you direct them? Is it DM training? Yeah, come to my website. If you go to yeah. a, one of the things I do is I produce a lot of free content. So if you're mm -hmm. thinking about sales, and by the way, sales isn't just sales. Sales is psychology. Sales is yeah. game theory. Sales is marketing. 
So, you know, it's a wide range of topics. And what we do is we produce content sometimes in partnership with other experts or mm -hmm. other people in the, in the field. So, but a lot of playbooks and articles and lists of things, and we have a free newsletter. And of course we have our own podcast. So if you go to our website, which is www.dmtraining.net, you'll find uh, all, all this free stuff. And so how long have you been doing that? Is that, was that the main, I mean, so DM stands for Digital media training, digital media, because we a teach people about digital things and how to think digitally and apply digital to their selling, but also we mm -hmm. deliver the training digitally. So we, especially now, everything is done virtually or online. Yeah. And that's nice, right? You don't have to travel. Oh, I'm doing more traveling from my home now than ever. Oh yeah. Um, and so just before we go, is there anything else um, related to failure? Any last um, tidbits, stories, or, or just thoughts about um, how people can maybe get rid of some of the sting of, of failure or look towards yeah. that? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a Here's my thought. Failure sounds like a very binary way to measure something. You, It's on, it's off. You failed, you succeeded. And it's because you think of it that way that it's always win-lose and almost always you lose. Because, mm -hmm. you know, everything is a lose except that one thing that like you won the Super Bowl. Um, so you got to change the way the words that you use when you describe the situation. And when you change it to it's a step on the way, it's a yeah. learning opportunity. It's mm -hmm. an experience that's going to help shape the next thing I'm going to do. Yeah. Unnecessary all of a sudden, everything is a win-win. And if all else fails, remember the great words of Winston Churchill, who said, success is maintaining enthusiasm between failures. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And I think uh, whatever kind of mental tricks you can do, I decided to put it on my license plate and make it so it's super obvious in my face so that I can't uh feel that word as the same way you know get more comfortable with it uh -huh. a lot of people hate hate it so i mean like whatever you can do if you whether tricking yourself calling it stumbling blocks getting through whatever it is is a necessary part of getting there but certainly i found uh there's no way to be successful without failing first and many times and i still don't know what success looks like but i'm happy to try to find that but i, I do appreciate you coming on and sharing uh you know some of your insight i know you've got a lot of history i'm sure we didn't even touch on most that's all right. But we talked about the failure, which is really the most interesting thing. And it's probably the most shared human condition, too. Yeah. And also, I mean, that's how we learn. And a lot of times we don't necessarily share those after after we become successful. People tend to only focus on the good things. So it's nice to know whoever it is has had those kind of things happen. They're just maybe not broadcasting it, you know, all after right. the fact. That's a very good point. You never know the failures that some person has, no matter who they are. And it looks so it looks from the outside. Everybody else's job looks easy. And somebody else's success always looks like it came easy and unfairly. But from their point yep. of view, it was struggles and it was failures all along the way. Yeah. And I think it's why we like those underdog stories. You like the people who are broken, living out of their car that turn it around. Cause then, yep. Yep. you know, it's uh, it's a lot more appealing than just the person who slogged through and, and did it over time. Um, but thanks again for coming on here. And uh, can you just plug your podcast? I don't know what yours is called or, or what you do on yours. Uh, sure. Food for thought. Now, there's a lot. I didn't uh, failed also to check how many food <laughs> for thoughts there are. 
So you got right off the bat. So if you go to, you got to go food for thought, Steve Bookbinder, but you'll okay. find it on every podcast platform. Cool. Well, I'll make sure to link, link that, the other things in the show notes as well. And uh, again, thanks for coming on here. And I, I look forward to uh, sharing it with the world. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time.